be not afraid. Be not afraid. The angel comes to Joseph and he says, be not afraid to take Mary as your wife. The angel comes to Mary and says, be not afraid for the child that is within you is from the Holy Spirit. The angel comes to the shepherds and to the wise men and says, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. It comes to you and to me. As a matter of fact, Rick Warren in his book, Purpose Driven Life, uh, says that in the Bible you can find be not afraid. Anybody know how many times? 365 times. That seems right. Uh, once a day, we need this reminder. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Will you say it with me? Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Well, not, be not afraid of what? There are plenty of things to be afraid of in the world. Um, well, it depends on what God is calling you to do. Um, but in Joseph's case, it's be not afraid to do the right thing. We're going to dive into that um, because there are lots of things Joseph could have done in this situation. Uh, this week, we're going to look at Joseph. Next week, Mary. The week after that, uh, the shepherds. And the week after that, friends, it will be Christmas. Uh, it'll be right there. So to do the right thing. If you take your sermon notes out, I invite you to do that. Maybe if that helps you. Um, if it doesn't help you, don't worry about it. Uh, we just ask that you don't uh, bug your buddy with it, right? So um, Jesus urges us 21 times in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus 21 times saying, Be not afraid or fear not of be of good cheer. This is, this is an important theme in Jesus' ministry. So important, in fact, that it's almost three times the amount of the second most important thing that Jesus said, which was super important. It was known as the Shema. It was something that uh, the people knew is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, and that was to love God and neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And a second is like it. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Yet this, he says, only eight times. Only eight times compared to uh, more than 20 times to be not afraid. Well, I, I wonder if, if we don't struggle with being afraid uh, more often than almost anything else in our life. We're afraid of what other people think. We're afraid of what other people might do. We're afraid of what other nations might do. Um, and it's been somewhat in vogue uh, since uh, the political climate of the 1960s uh, to now use fear as a way to get people to move and to motivate them and to scare them into submission. And so particularly since the 1960s in our country, there has been this wave of fear that has been sitting on people. And certainly um, even uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in January of 1941 said there's nothing to fear but what? Fear itself. Well, researchers actually say he's wrong about that. There are lots of things to fear. Problem is we fear the wrong sorts of things. There are things that we fear that we ought not fear. For example, um, many young parents um, will send their children out to play. And they are worried that their children will be kidnapped out of their front yard. Not likely. However, they will also send them out without a helmet to ride their bike. The likelihood of them falling off their bike and having a head injury is very high. You need to be afraid of that. Now I've just made you afraid. I'm sorry. Um, but it, you see, the thing is, there are things that we need to be concerned with. It's not that we're checking our brains at the door. Not at all. There are things that we need to be aware of and concerned about. But when we're with God and in God's will, it is the safest place to be. There's no safer place in all the world to be in the hand of God, in the will of God. It's a great way to live your life. So God's messengers to Joseph and to Mary, to shepherds and to us is be not afraid. We say it with me one more time. Be not afraid. Now we come to Joseph. Now Joseph is an interesting character. The Bible says almost nothing about him. And yet he plays an, an huge role in the life of our master and savior Jesus. 
Uh, Reverend Adam Hamilton, in his latest uh, book and work in Bible study, he says that no man played a more important role in Jesus' life than Joseph. Think about that. that. That's quite a statement, that no man played a more important role in Jesus' life than Joseph. Now, this will be true for, for many reasons. Um, what the Savior of the world comes to know about what it is to follow uh, God faithfully as a Jewish man, he would learn that from who? From Joseph. He would learn what a work ethic is and how to be faithful among hardship and what it is to live in community and to attend synagogue and to learn the scriptures. Where would he learn that? From his dad, from Joseph. So who was this Joseph? Joseph was, the Bible says, a lowly carpenter. Uh, The Greek word is tekton. Now, this is important because it's not an architect, uh, which in Greek is architecton. And so we, it's not that he's this city planner. It's not that he's an architect. He's not he's this master builder. He is a carpenter. Now, other folks who, who have studied the region, those of you who have been to Israel with me know, there's not a lot of wood. And so some people say, well, he wasn't really a carpenter. He was a stonemason. Well, I would disagree. Uh, why? Because there's a Greek word for stonemason. And if they meant stonemason, they would have written stonemason. But that's not what they wrote. What they wrote was carpenter. So what this would most likely mean is that he worked with wood. And he would make things like a table or chairs, or a plow, uh, maybe a yoke uh, to, to plow the fields. It was a, a, a very important role in the life of a community. If you're an agricultural community in that area, you couldn't live without a carpenter. Everything that you had, everything you worked with, every time something broke, you would go see the carpenter. And, and in many ways, you could argue that it was uh, maybe the center of the community, right alongside the synagogue. There was religious life, and then there was your, your regular life. You needed a carpenter uh, when your plow broke or when your yoke wasn't working right or, or if you needed uh, something at your home. It was the carpenter that you would go and see. But it was hard work, friends. It was blue-collar, sweating it out, day in, day out, work that provided for a family. And I want you to think about this. Some of you, um, this, this will be very powerful for you because you've been, you, this has happened to you or you've been a part of this. But Joseph adopts Jesus as a son. Not something he had to do. It wasn't the smart move. And it wasn't required of him by his religious tradition. It was something that God placed on his heart and he followed through and it changed the world. For you and me, even now. More than 2,000 years later, we talk about this regular Joe Carpenter who saved the world through his son Jesus. Well, think about it. Think about what was at stake. About a young woman caught in what the rest of the community would think was adultery. And Joseph steps in. Not because he has to. Because it's the right thing to do. It's what God calls him to do. Now, the Christian writing in about 150 AD, uh, this is not what we would call canonical. We don't live our life by it. It's not something that we're required to believe. But the writings about Joseph and the Holy Family suggest that Joseph was an older widower. Older is your blank there. Uh, He was an old man. And the, the, the legend around this, the tradition, the story around this uh, that is still around today is that Mary, as, maybe as young as three years old, uh, was orphaned or abandoned by her family or something tragic happened and she was raised by the temple priest in the outer courts. Now, the, 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 the priest there um, needed to find a, a, basically a parent, a husband or a grandfather uh, sort of figure, father, grandfather figure to take care of this young girl. Uh, priests could only raise the girl until she became a woman. She was now a woman um, at 12 uh, in, their, in their culture and their tradition, and they needed to find her a husband. And so they started looking for a husband, uh, one that could actually take care of her uh, in the best sort of way. Uh, and they needed one from the house of David. That's, that's what their tradition taught them. And so they suggest that Joseph's uh, first wife had died 
uh, when he was about 90 years old. And so the tradition of the Holy Family was that Joseph was 90 when his first wife died, and she left him with six children to raise. And so he needed help. Uh, he needed somebody around the house. He needed, needed help around that, and he was old. Um, and he would not be a threat to this young girl, but a great help to her. Now, if, if we were in uh, the historic church, this was important to them for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which was Mary's perpetual virginity. Uh, because if she's the Virgin Mary, uh, they want that to be the case all the way through. Yet, in the Bible, we know that Jesus has brothers and sisters. James, the writer of the book of James, is Jesus' brother. Everybody knows that. So one of the ways that they look at this is say, well, no, these are really all half-brothers and sisters of Jesus from a former wife. And so this allows her to be perpetually a virgin all the way through. Her marriage never consummated and yet provides a way for her, provides for Joseph, uh, provides for Jesus and the family. Make sense? Now, this isn't something you have to believe, uh, but it is out there. It was in the water um, as late as the 1600s, and it's still around today. Even Protestant folks like Martin Luther and even our founder, John Wesley, um, would have understood it um, in, in very similar ways to this. And so in the 1600s, um, uh, a painter by the name of Elisabetta Serrani, that's my best Italian, uh, writes, St. Joseph with the infant, uh, Jesus, looks like this. You see how old Joseph is. It doesn't look like a young dad with his baby. Um, he's actually old. It could be grandpa. And so um, it's kind of sweet. Now, you might be like, no, I'm not buying any of that. That's fine. You don't have to. Uh, there's nothing in, in Matthew or in Luke that would suggest that this is the case. There's also nothing in the, the Gospels that suggests it's not the case. So other um, artists, um, Bartolome Esteban Murillo, for example, also in the 1600s, uh, has this, the holy family with dog. There's also a holy family with bird. There's holy family with all sorts of things. Um, and you can see that Mary and Joseph here look roughly the same age, uh, a few years apart. Now, uh, for our Western sensibilities, um, we like this one. We're like, you know, the thought of Joseph being 90 and Mary being 14, you like, no. Um, but I would remind you, culturally, that, that's a different deal, right? Other, other cultures don't have the same sort of hang-ups or, or, or issues with, with that as we do. And so we kind of need to set our culture aside and say, okay, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, you know, we don't exactly know what it is. I do think, though, that the further away we get from the actual events, the worse we are at knowing what happened. Uh, some people believe the opposite. They think that we're getting better and better, and we know more and more. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a sketchy thing for me. Uh, speaking of sketchy stuff, I wanted to show you this because this is one of my favorite portrayals of Joseph, but I don't think it's true. I, I just really like to see the three wise men present Mary and Joseph with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know what myrrh is, babe? The what? The myrrh. The what? The myrrh. The what? Myrrh. The what? Myrrh. The what? Myrrh. The myrrh? The what? The myrrh. <laughs> the myrrh. You know what? This is just not working. Why are you two even doing this? We want to go to heaven. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to ask you both to leave. You look like Mrs. Brady. <laughs> Get out. We got to go, babe. Yay. Grab your phone, babe. <laughs> this baby doesn't look like Santa. <laughs> we can get it wrong. We can get it wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to, you know, get lockstep about this stuff. But it is difficult to know. But there are a few things we can know about Joseph that I think are important. Uh, one is that he was faithful. And he was just. And he was righteous. That's what the Bible tells us about him. And 
uh, we do know that a betrothal is a two-year legally binding engagement. And that's what they were part of. We don't have anything like that in our culture. But when you were betrothed, um, you were going to get married. There was no way out of it unless there was adultery. Um, And that was where Joseph found himself. So the legend is that he married Mary at 93. His wife died uh, when he was 90. He had a year grieving period. It would make him 91. He had a betrothal. So at 93, then he would marry Mary and die at 111 when Jesus was 18. Um, That's the Christian writing about the Holy Family. Now... This is important because what this means is that Jesus wasn't going to be baptized until what age? He's 30, right? He's baptized by John. So he's going to learn the family business. He's going to help the community. He's going to live in community. He's going to learn under his father. And then he's going to take over the family business in this small nowhere town. If it was in Oklahoma, we'd call it a one-stop light blinking town, maybe a stop sign town, Uh, maybe 20 families tops, 20, 30 families, Um, just hardly anybody there, very, very small rural place where they were important and centered the agricultural community. And Jesus runs the shop for the next 12 years until his public ministry. Now, I want you to think about what this, what this says about God. God chooses to come from heaven. He's God Almighty. He comes into the Virgin Mary. He's born and he lives in a nowhere place for 30 years. Just doing what his dad tells him and teaches him. He has three years of public ministry, only one-tenth of his life. Is, is actually what's recorded in the Gospels. All this whole first 90%, we know almost nothing about other than he's formed by Joseph. And what are the sorts of things that they would talk about in the shop? Well, one of the things we know about Jewish boys is that they would learn the Torah, the, the five books of the law. If you know them, say them with me. They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This they would know, and they would know it cold. And I can imagine as, as Jesus and Joseph would be talking and working in the shop, um, Jesus would say, yeah, Dad, I, I know the law. It says this, 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 and this. And he, and he says, I know the law about that. And it says this, 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 and this. And, you know, how are we to live that out? Or, or something would happen. There would be, uh, maybe they were shorted. Somebody were, was supposed to pay for the yoke, and they couldn't afford it. Or maybe they were supposed to help pay them for this, and, and they were in arrears. And the law had all sorts of things around that. And I can imagine, as, as a young boy, Jesus would ask his dad, well, what should we do about that? Shouldn't we make them pay? That's what the law says. That's what God's law says. And in my mind, Joseph says, well, no. God's heart is bigger than the law. He might even say to his son, you know, son, if I had followed the law when you were about to be born, you wouldn't be here. Your mom would have never made it had I not stopped in and adopted you and taught you here. You see, something happened between the relation between Joseph and Jesus that Jesus learned in a young age and taught the rest of his life that there was something greater than the law, that he came to fulfill it, but so much more, so much more. He would say things in Matthew 5 like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love those who persecute you and pray for them, and if they hit you on the right cheek, turn the left also. You've heard it said, but I say to you that you're supposed to carry the Roman soldier's backpack one mile when Rome has their boot on the back of your neck and are crushing you down. No, no, no. I say to you, carry it two miles. The law requires one. I say two because these Roman soldiers, God loves them too, and they are far from home, and they need a witness of love and compassion. You've heard it said, uh, divorce this and divorce that, but I say to you, I commend Matthew 5 to you this afternoon and see over and over again at every turn, Jesus says, yes, the law would say this, but look at the compassion of God and his mercy. 
It requires more of us. You see, this training and work shaped Jesus' ministry, every bit of it. And so later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, it says this, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you all ever seen a yoke? Looks like this. And so as I, as I uh, imagine it in my mind, um, you know, maybe this was written at Jesus' carpentry shop. He says, take my yoke upon you. See, the one to the left, it's 50 bucks, right? Here it is. It's well-fitting. If we were to do an entire sermon on this passage, uh, which, which we've done, it's an amazing passage. What Jesus is saying is, my yoke is not burdensome. No, it's well-fitting. It fits you well. It fits as, a, as an animal fits you well. You'd put a donkey on one side and a donkey on the other or an ox or some other beast of burden, and they could do things together that a farmer could never do on his own if it fit them well. However, it would not have been unusual for people to, to see yokes that did not fit their animals well. And that was deadly for the animal, for the crops, and for the family. Because if you have an ill-fitted yoke, it'll rub the animal wrong, and you'll have sores and disease and death. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, there's death, yes, there's fear, yes, there's problems, but my yoke, if you take my yoke, my way of life, uh, being a rabbi, people would begin to follow him, his yoke, his teaching, his life. If you take that upon you, you will be fine because there's no, let me say it again, safer place to be in this world than in the hand of God and in the will of the Father. So you don't need to be afraid if you're in Jesus' yoke. It's not that you don't need to be afraid of anything at any time. It's that you need to be afraid if you're not connected to God because that's the safest place to be. So what does the Bible say about Joseph? It says this, that Joseph had a plan. And I want to let you know it's a good plan. It wasn't a bad plan. It was the plan that a Sunday school teacher would have told him to do. It would have been the, the, the same plan that his men's small group would have said, that, that's a smart plan. It's the same plan that everything in the law said, yes, that's right. Look, you are engaged. She's pregnant. You know it's not yours. Step away. That was the smart plan. And by the way, it was the kind plan. It was a good plan. Now, we, we may not be able to see it that way from here 2,000 years later in Edmond, Oklahoma. But friends, in that time and that place, it was the kindest thing he could do. There were a lot of other choices he had, and he chose none of them. But God had a better plan, an even better plan. The scripture says it this way. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, a good man, the one that did the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, he was unwilling to expose her to the public disgrace, which he could have done, and he planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, a very good and noble plan, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David. Again, there's that house of David piece. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are named him Jesus, an alliteration of Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. And then Joseph wakes up. He's in a dream. He wakes up, and he has a choice to make. You and I have a choice to make. Can you imagine being asleep and you have this dream and you're faced with this choice? And you know that if you're faithful to this choice, your life, as you know, is very well over. The livelihood, your ability to care uh, for your children, your six children, uh, to care for Mary uh, or Jesus or any of that. I mean, it's all out the door, friends. If, if, he, if he takes her as his wife, what, what's going to happen? Will anybody come and buy another thing from him? It's not, it's not a big town, friends. I mean, I graduated with a class of 54. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. I mean, you make the wrong choice in that size town, you're over. You're, that's the end of you. 
Yet, the scripture says this. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. With all that was at stake. But I would remind you that by law, Joseph could step away. He could. That's what was expected. That's what the, that was the smart move. That's what people thought that he would do. And this is why. Because because they knew the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Cold, they knew this. If there was a young woman, a virgin, already engaged to be married, and a man meets her in the town and lies with her, you shall bring both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. That was the law. The young woman, because she did not cry for help in the town, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Sometimes the law was confusing. This was not one of those times. Right? Young woman, marry. Virgin, marry. Engaged to be married, marry. And and. Everybody knew what was supposed to happen next. Now, to be fair, it didn't have to. The rabbi could step in, and it could be a lesser charge. Not every woman caught in adultery was stoned to death. But it was bad. It was really bad. And it could happen. Her life was on the line. And so was Jesus, for that matter. So God called Joseph to act in the face of real danger to him, to his family, to Mary, and to Jesus himself. Now, if that weren't bad enough, you go one more chapter, and Joseph has this really bad habit of falling asleep. Now, if I was Joseph, I would try to sleep as little as possible. Because every time I go to sleep... The angel of the Lord comes to me and tells me something really horrendous. So this is what happens next in chapter 2. Now, after they had left, that's a reference to the wise men, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. And, and the angel says to him this time, get up, take the child and his mother. They're about two years of old. He's, Jesus is about two years of age at this point, And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, Herod is the most powerful man in the whole country, in the whole region. And he's going to kill the child because he's threatened about his throne. Now imagine, if you're Joseph, again, you have a choice to make. You're going to leave your family business, the only place you've ever lived, and you're going to an entirely different country, and a country, by the way, that had enslaved your people for 400 years. Does that sound like a good plan to you? And what does Joseph do? He gets up, takes the child and his mother by night, and they go to Egypt. And they remain there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So, let me just throw it out there. What's so great about Joseph? It's all we know about him. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I wonder if the Lord could say the same about us. Because that's where the real power is. We did as the angel of the Lord commanded us. Wouldn't that be great? If that could be written about us, we simply did as the Lord commanded us. That's it. We worked hard. We did our thing. We kept our head down. Uh, we did what we were supposed to do. But when, when push came to shove, when it came time, obedience to God matters, friends. It does. It saves the world. I mean, I, I shudder to think what would happen if Joseph had not stepped in. Would we even be here today? Would we know the story as it is? Certainly not. It would be a very different story. I don't know how God would choose to save the world, but it would be a different story than this one for sure. Obedience. It's really, really important. It's underrated. People don't like to talk about it because it's hard. But this is what Joseph did. And depending on, on your viewpoint of history, he might have done it at 90. And that's old to be moving to Egypt. I don't like moving and I'm 50. 
like half his age. I mean, that's, that's tough stuff. So your action step, friends, are these. I want you to think about this. I think Joseph was caught in the same place that you and I are caught. There's this tension between what we've grown up knowing, what we learned in Sunday school, maybe even what we've heard taught across the pulpit from Dr. Alexander or Reverend Andy or myself, and then there's your life, your real life. And, and, and then you have to put it together somehow. And not everything that our tradition teaches us, not everything we find in the law tells us what to do about the world we live in. Does it? No more than it told Joseph what to do other than to step away from Mary. Certainly taking her as his wife was not in the cards. It was not in the law. But that is what God commanded him. So this is where it gets tough, doesn't it? Where is God calling you to show compassion beyond your religious requirements? Where is God asking you to go the second mile when the law requires one? Where is God asking you to forgive your enemies where the law had previously not required that? You see, this life of Jesus, this life of love, this life of compassion, this life of mercy takes us beyond even our good, strong Methodist Wesleyan heritage from time to time. How do we do that faithfully? What is God calling you to do, and how is that? And how do you know? These are really important questions. I think that every one of us, in some place in our life, God calls us to show compassion beyond the law, beyond what we've been taught, beyond what some people might say is even wise. Then in chapter 2, we're faced with another question that Joseph would chase was faced with which is where is god commanding you to act on behalf of another now when i was putting this together on friday with andy um i wrote down where is god calling you to act on behalf of another and i thought oh that just sounds good it has a nice ring to it where where are you called to and then i read the scripture again and it says get up take the child and his mother to egypt does that sound like a calling to you no it's not a calling it's a command at times, God gets in our grill and he talks to us, whether in our sleep or through our spouse or through a friend or through a neighbor, and he says, you, go now, get them, go to Egypt. Sometimes God commands us. He just does. I would prefer calling. It's not what he says. He says, you, get up, take Mary, the child, and go. And I suppose from time to time in your life, whether it's already happened or will happen again. God's saying to you very directly today, there's something in your life. There's someone in your life and you need to get them. You need to pick up. You need to make that right today. You need to. That's your calling. That's my command on behalf of another. Now, I don't know what it is for you, but I do want you to know in just a moment, uh, you're going to see a living example of this. Uh, in the time of response, we're going to have uh, a team from Living Water International come up. And the law never said you must go and drill uh, water wells for people who are dying uh, of waterborne illness. Um, we're supposed to care for the poor and that, and we get that, and you can get there from there. Um, but we've done that. We've done that about 15 times through El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, but John Hurd, and you'll hear him talk about this more in a moment, he felt God come and command him to go beyond what we had been doing for the last seven years, from 2009, 2010 to last year. We had been drilling with, with mud and water, uh, for years and doing good work all through Guatemala. And the Lord, he really felt like the Lord commanded him and said, John, we need to go to places that they can't get to, but they don't have the right equipment. I'm putting it on you in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, an engineer here in this state, to raise the money 
and to get there and to go to places we've never been able to go with new equipment. And he's going to share more of that story with you in a moment. But I want you to see how that's well beyond the law. That's well beyond the requirement. And for him, that was his calling last year. And we're going to celebrate that in a minute. But you too have a calling. I just wonder what that might be. Let's be brave. Be not afraid. And ask the Lord to show us. Amen?